Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you guys today. Can you hear me okay? I'm really booming right now, so I will not yell at you this morning. Well, so far this semester, we have been making our way through the, the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. If this is your first week here, that's what we've been doing. And we've been going through Matthew with an eye to what are the promises that God makes to us there. But more specifically, what are the promises that we see him keeping and fulfilling through the person of Jesus of Nazareth? We've seen how God's Old Testament promises of a coming Savior and a coming kingdom and his coming power uh, coming into the world, they all came true in the person of Jesus Christ. But today, we are actually going to look at a promise that Jesus makes to us. And it's a promise that he not only makes, but it's a promise that he's going to keep. He's going to keep it during our lifetime, but he's also going to keep it at the end of our lifetime as well. Now, when, when we look at uh, this particular promise in just a moment, there's a good chance that you will be shocked by it. You may be shocked by it. At first glance, I would say this is only a partially good promise that we're receiving from the Lord. I think at least half of what Jesus is going to say to us today through his word is not something we would probably want to have. Not a promise that we would choose to receive on our own. But when we look at this promise more closely, we can see the rich and the wise goodness of God demonstrated in it and coming to us and for us in this promise. It's a goodness that is for us. It's working on our behalf. It's a goodness that intends blessing for us, a goodness that loves us even through the worst of circumstances. This single promise that we're going to look at today actually comes to us, I think, in two ways. Jesus states it in two ways in the passage that we're going to read. On the one hand, Jesus says, I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. There's a promise that's in that. And in the picture that he's going to paint of this promise, uh, this promise coming true, we're going to see how it seems to be a promise of division. So it's, it's not the cheeriest of promises, not the sort of thing that we would like to appropriate for ourselves. But then on the other hand, he says, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He seems to be promising on the heels of division some enormous loss for those who follow him. But at the same time, he also seems to be promising enormous gain. Division, loss, but also gain. I think these three ideas right there are all facets of one picture, the same picture. It's one single promise that Jesus is making to us among all these other promises that we've already looked at and that we're going to look at this semester. I think that if we're to boil down, uh, boil these things down to the core of the promise in this passage, it would be this. Jesus promises us suffering. Jesus promises us suffering. Now, we tend to think of suffering as being an exclusively negative thing. And there's, there's no sugarcoating it. There's no downplaying it. There's no ignoring it. Suffering is a horrible part of life in this world. It's very real. We can't ignore it. And it is bad. But without denying that reality, Jesus actually takes a bigger view of suffering than we often do. He takes a view of suffering that is not exclusively negative. Suffering in all of its forms is something that's going to be deeply painful. But 
Suffering, as Jesus talks about it, can also produce something very good. And it's at this mysterious intersection of both pain and goodness together that Jesus makes this two-sided promise to us. Division and loss on the one hand in this life, but also immeasurable gain, both in this life and in the life to come. Jesus makes us the promise of suffering. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start reading in verse 34. Now, we're jumping ahead um, a few stories from where we left off last time. Since the the stories that we read in chapters 8 and 9 last week, Jesus has continued to demonstrate his power to heal. He has called more disciples to follow him, including Matthew, the author of this book, the Gospel of Matthew. And then he sends these disciples out. He, he christens 12 of them to be called apostles or sent ones. And he sends them out to do what he has been doing. To preach about God's kingdom and to heal other people with the power that he delegates to them. But also, since we've last seen Jesus, he has been giving them a heads up about what to expect when they go out on that mission. They're to expect persecution. But he also says they shouldn't be afraid of that. God knows them and he loves them and he is with them as they go. And therefore, they should acknowledge Jesus before other people. They shouldn't deny him even at the pain of suffering, trial, tribulation, maybe even death. They are to declare boldly that they are, in fact, Jesus' disciples. They're not to shrink back from those who would kill them for identifying with him. And they're That's because whether they acknowledge or deny him before other people, Jesus says he will do the very same thing about them before his Father in heaven. The stakes are raised pretty high. And so with that ringing in our ears, Jesus says this to his disciples. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, wow. Right? I mean, there is, there is a lot to swallow in that passage right there. So, let's, let's just start with something a little bit lighter in here. Jesus says that he has not come to bring peace on the earth. If you're left scratching your head at that one, you're not alone. I do too, because isn't peace specifically what he is supposed to bring on the earth? Where is this coming from? Luke's gospel, if you you turn over to the gospel of Luke, when you read the story of Jesus' birth and all the songs that happen in there, the the angels show up to the shepherds to, to make this big announcement, and they sing to them, peace on earth among those on whom God's favor rests. Earlier in this very book, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus was nonviolent in his ministry. He even told 
Well, he will tell Peter later to put away his sword when Judas and the temple guards finally come into the garden to arrest him and take him off to Pilate and beginning the story of the crucifixion. So, so what's going on here? Jesus is the peace guy, we thought. Well, the short of it is that God has, in fact, promised peace on earth through his Messiah. That is true. Peace will, in fact, be a result of Jesus' mission, and it will be a far greater peace than any of us have even imagined so far. But the road to that peace leads through conflict. It's conflict for Jesus himself, but it's also conflict for us. And it's not just conflict. Specifically, it is suffering. Here's that two-sided promise that Jesus makes to us. Jesus promises his followers suffering, but not as an exclusively negative thing. He promises both that they will have this experience of division and loss, but also that they'll have the experience of gain beyond anything they've dreamed, they've dreamed of so far. They're, these are two sides of the same coin in God's kingdom, two sides of the same promise. And if we are going to take Jesus' words seriously, and brothers and sisters, let's take his words seriously. If we're to do that, the stakes are very high. It is nothing short of finding or losing your very life. So let's look at these pieces of this promise together. Well, the first thing that we can say is that we, we can separate out the negative side of this promise into maybe a couple of parts. It might be a little bit of an artificial separation on our part because Jesus' words, they all hang together in this passage really well. But I think it could be helpful for our understanding uh, to see how this suffering is promised in different ways. So Jesus starts by saying, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is a picture of division. And not just between the disciples who he's sending out and strangers that they may happen to meet out there on the road as they're, as they're preaching the gospel. He's talking about deep rifts inside their own families. And not just their own families, but our own families, our closest relatives even. He doesn't say that every single one of his followers all through time is going to experience this, at least to the same extreme extent that this passage is describing here. But we need to remember that Jesus himself experienced this division within his family. Do you recall a story? It's told in, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3 where Jesus' own mother and half-brothers, the children of Mary and Joseph, they, they come to him while he is out preaching and they try to stop him. They try to pull him away. They try to kind of shove him back inside a house somewhere so he can't keep, do, keep doing what he's doing and saying what he's saying because they think he's crazy. They think he's gone out of his mind. And because he suffered that kind of division from his own family, that is a pattern for his disciples in general as well. The life that Jesus lived is the pattern of the life that we are called into when we follow him. I became a Christian during my college years here at U of I when I was a sophomore. I came from a wonderful family. It was a wonderful growing up experience. But one major thing was missing from my life, and that was just the entire category of spirituality. It was just sort of a big blank spot in our life as a family. 
We didn't talk about it. We didn't really miss it. It just wasn't a thing. Now, at the time, when, when I came into college, I didn't think much about that. I, wasn't, I hadn't been given a bad taste in my mouth for Jesus or the gospel or the Bible or church or anything like that. It was just, like I said, a, a blank space in my life. Well, when I arrived on campus at U of I, that blank space got filled in pretty quickly with curiosity. That curiosity actually led me here to TCBC. I was living at FAR as a freshman, and coming here led me to hearing the gospel for the very first time, and hearing the gospel led me eventually to believe in Jesus. And very slowly, after that happened, the beginning of my sophomore year and sort of creeping through my undergrad days, I started to let my parents in on that decision. At first, they looked at me kind of weird, but they assumed that it was just sort of a phase that I was going through. As time went by, I was baptized right here, right under this stage. I invited them to that baptism, and I I started talking about Jesus with them a whole lot more. And it started becoming clear to them that this was not just a phase that I was going through, and that's when they started to get real worried. My mom actually asked me if I had joined a cult. My dad just tried to avoid the whole conversation, but sort of putting off this air of disappointment in a big way. Well, after undergrad, I stayed for grad school here, which made them very happy. They were excited about the prospect of an aerospace engineer in the family, maybe working at NASA. But about halfway through my master's program, I knew that I wasn't very happy. My enjoyment of and my skill for all the stuff that I was doing in engineering was just plummeting, dropping like a rock. And at the same time, my love for Jesus and my love for the church and my desire to see other college students experience what I had found during my undergrad days, that was taking off like a rocket. My parents could tell. They could see that difference. At least they could tell that my heart was no longer in engineering. And so one weekend when I was visiting back at home, I was sitting out on the patio with my dad, and he just asked me point blank, Steve, what are you thinking? What are you doing with your future? So I took a deep breath, and I went for it, and I said, actually, uh, Dad, I've been thinking about going into ministry. And then the bottom dropped out. My dad, who is not an emotional guy, threw up his hands in exasperation. He was drinking a beer at the time. He threw his beer bottle across the yard. This is the most violent thing I've ever seen this man do in my life. Stormed inside. I was shocked, just kind of sitting sitting there in stunned silence. When I finally went inside to kind of pick up the pieces, he had told my mom, and she was in the kitchen sobbing, Stephen, you're killing us. You're killing us, is what she said to me. And then my dad, still furious, added in, if I could get my hands on the people who've been talking to you, I would strangle them. That began a low period in my relationship with my parents for about two years. We didn't talk anywhere near as much as we had before, and when we did talk, it certainly was not about ministry. Now, things changed at first slowly and then much faster, especially after they met Amy and could see that I was marrying up. But though God graciously mended those rifts, they were, that was a very real and very painful division for a considerable period of time. Now, I do not want to pretend to come across to you guys as some sort of martyr. 
my, my story right there is nothing like the depth that some people have to walk through in their lives. There are far worse divisions in families because of Jesus. About five years ago, there was a student who arrived here on the U of I campus from Iran. His name was Ali, and Ali was from a devout Muslim family. He came here with really no interest in Jesus or Christianity except to stay away from it. Well, somehow, I actually don't know all the details of this story, he encountered a group of Christians on campus. A few of them had a connection here to TCBC. And long story, very short, after studying the Bible with them for a few months and going to a student retreat where he heard the challenge to follow Jesus, Ali gave his life to Christ. But when his family back home in Iran found out about that, the result was catastrophic. His father disavowed him from their family, and he said that if he ever came back home, he would kill him. Ali had to apply for refugee status here in the United States, and he was granted that. He graduated from the U of I. He moved off to a different state to pursue grad school, and he has continued following Jesus in the years since. Because Ali chose Jesus, he can't go home again. He has lost his family, his biological family. And this is the sword, friends. This is the division that Jesus was talking about. He promises that his mission and his message, he promises that he himself will divide families like a sword right down the middle. And when that division happens, because someone hasn't loved father or mother or son or daughter or brother or sister more than Jesus, when the, when the division happens for that reason, because they love Jesus first, it shows that they're worthy of him. To say that a disciple is worthy of him is to say that they have what it takes. They've got what it takes to be a disciple. Not that they had to muster that up on their own, but they've demonstrated that they have the essential quality of being a follower of Christ. They put him first. Now, it doesn't mean that if those divisions are there at one point, that they will always exist, that they will never be healed. But for as long as they do exist, that is an example of the suffering that Jesus has promised to us. Okay, now the other side of the, the negative part of this promise that Jesus made comes in verses 38 and 39. Whoever does not carry his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You might be familiar with that statement. Even if you haven't read it yourself, there's probably a part of this that you've heard somewhere at some point. It's one of Jesus' most famous descriptions about the cost of discipleship. But it's also, unfortunately, become just a sort of a standard euphemism for doing something hard, or maybe even just kind of doing something annoying to bear your cross. We, we too easily throw that into conversation as a joke. But this was no joke. Jesus meant this very literally. This verse right here is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that the word cross is mentioned. We have seen some opposition from the Pharisees up to this point, but the idea of a Roman cross, it, it hasn't entered the story yet. This is the first time. So I, I want you to think with me for a minute here. What would different audiences reading or hearing this story think about 
cross, all of a sudden, the, the idea of a cross entering the conversation at this point. Well, for us, and maybe even for some of the original readers of Matthew's gospel, this is foreshadowing because we know where this story is going, right? We know that Jesus is heading to a Roman crucifixion where he is going to be murdered. So we hear him calling anyone who would follow him to a similar sort of fate. But now think about this. What about the original listeners of Jesus saying these things for the first time? What would they have thought? Now, remember who the original audience, the listening audience to this was. It was the disciples, right? That's who Jesus is talking to here. And as Matthew tells the story, this is the first time that they have heard him drop that cross bomb into, into conversation. Now, it's true, they've heard him say things like, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But since he said that in the Sermon on the Mount, for the most part, things have, they've kind of been going along swimmingly. They've been going decently well. So you can imagine the disciples looking around at one another, wondering, why is he talking about a Roman cross now? I mean, that's a little, that's a little dark, Jesus. Maybe we could go a different route there. But even if the bigger picture is, for now, hidden from the disciples, their understanding of what the cross meant was not. They understood that very clearly. And it would have sent a shudder down their spines. Crucifixion was the most cruel form of execution that was then in use. It was reserved only for slaves and political rebels. It was publicly humiliating. It involved excruciating suffering. And it wasn't just a method of execution, it was a message that went with it. You were forced to bear your own instrument of torture, past a jeering mob to the site of your own imminent death as a condemned criminal. There's one writer who puts it very bluntly. When Jesus talks about this with his disciples, that is the prospect Jesus holds out before any worthy disciple. A savage death and public disgrace. Now, the vast majority of Christians over the ages have not died in that way, have not been literally crucified. So we have rightly come to see that Jesus means more than just a literal understanding of this verse. And the key to understanding that is in verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The word that Jesus uses there for life, it's, it's a big word, and it's got a, a pretty broad range of meaning. Soul or life or even self, those are some of the most common translations of this word in our Bibles. It signifies the essential core part of a person, the fundamental you that is alive. And so in Matthew, when Jesus uses this word, he actually covers that full range of meaning. It, it shows up in a lot of different places, and he, and he hits all of those meanings. Here, in verse 39, when Jesus talks about us losing our lives, he definitely has our physical, mortal life in mind, but I think he has more than that in mind as well. In the very early years of the church, in the first and, and second centuries, Literal martyrdom was a very real possibility for every single Christian. One of my favorite people from that period of history is a man named Polycarp. 
Polycarp was the, uh, the bishop of Smyrna, uh, one of the cities in Asia Minor, close to Ephesus and Colossae, where Paul you know, wrote a bunch of letters, planted a bunch of churches. Uh, and Polycarp was the bishop there in the mid-2nd century, so the mid-100s. He was already an old man when a wave of persecution broke out, and he was caught up in that wave. He was arrested and he was brought before the Roman proconsul in a stadium filled with an angry mob. And when the judge ordered him to recant his faith in Jesus or to be burned alive, this was his answer, which I heard first many years ago and have memorized and remembered ever since. Speaking out loud for the entire stadium to hear, Polycarp said, For 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How could I deny my king who saved me? And so this 90-ish year old man who had been brought up in the faith by a disciple of one of the original disciples was tied to a stake and was thrown in the fire. He lost his life publicly for Jesus' sake because he knew this promise from God that in losing his life for Jesus' sake, he would find it. But friends, we don't actually have to go back 2,000 years and 6,000 miles away to learn what this means. I'd like to tell you about my friend John. John was a computer science student here at U of I back in the mid-2000s. He was a few years younger than me. And after graduation, he stayed here in town. He worked up at NCSA. He also volunteered right here at TCBC. He was part of uh, helping to create an early database system for us. Now, John was just an ordinary guy. You can, uh, if you think lovably nerdy, you've got the right category for John. But his time uh, on campus and in a campus ministry and here at TCBC sparked a vision inside him for reaching others with the gospel. He went to the Urbana Student Mission Convention one year, and at first he didn't know if or how he could go overseas, but then he learned through some friends about an opportunity in Central Asia to teach computer programming at the university level. This was in a war-torn nation, um, and also a nation that was pretty unfriendly to the gospel and to Christians. John saw this as God opening a door for this vision to start to grow for it to grow even more, to to come to fruition. And over the next couple of years, John got married to another TCBC alum. And he and his wife and their friends, they started pursuing training and they got connected to an organization that enabled them to get over to this country. Well, they went. And for three years, John taught computer science in this major university over there, and he built relationships in this, or on, the, on the faculty and staff in this city where he lived. And he and his wife absolutely fell in love with this country. When they would write their letters back home to us, they would talk about the beauty of the land and of the people. They were simply captivated by it and by what God was doing there. Well, a few years ago, John's parents went over for a visit. And one day, John and his wife took them out into the city to kind of see the sights, show them around and everything, including a hospital where John's wife had worked at one point as a nurse. And as they were coming back out of the hospital, something happened. Without warning, one of the hospital security guards drew his weapon and opened fire. And John and his father 
and one of the doctors who was walking with them were all killed. John's wife was critically injured, but she survived. Their young daughter and John's mom were safe and unharmed. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, if TCBC is your church home here in Champaign, that story is part of your spiritual heritage. John sat in these pews. He walked on this campus. He lived a mile and a half that way. I called John's wife to ask for her permission to share this story, and she eagerly said yes. But she also wanted to make sure that John was presented as just an ordinary, normal guy. He wasn't some inaccessible spiritual superhero. He was just like the rest of us. But he was someone who understood that Jesus promised his followers suffering, even to the point of death. Now, why would John be willing to pay that cost? Why would Polycarp? Why would millions of our brothers and sisters throughout history and even around the world today be willing to pay that cost? Well, I think the answer is found in the flip side of Jesus' promise of suffering, which we can see right at the very end of verse 39. Yes, Jesus promises that we will suffer division from even our closest loved ones. Yes, Jesus promises that we will suffer the loss of our our lives, ourselves, possibly even our physical lives. But Jesus also promises that this is suffering that yields immeasurable gain. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Recall that this word for life here, it's a big, broad word. It it means soul, it means life, it means self. Whatever it is that we lose or give up in this life for Jesus' sake will be returned to us, perhaps in a different way, but in a far greater way than we have ever experienced it up to this point. And Jesus himself is our pattern for anticipating that. Just as he suffered division from his own family, he promises that we will suffer division when we follow him. Just as he suffered the painful humiliation and loss of his own life on the cross, he promises that we will lose our very selves, maybe even our mortal lives, when we follow him. But just as he received that life back in glory and power and strength, so will we when we follow him. This passage is actually pretty straightforward to understand. It's a little harder, though, to think about how this promised suffering might be worked out in our own lives. And it's even harder to answer the question, am I willing to take that on? So this isn't a passage that we can just listen to on a Sunday morning and then drop there and forget about it and walk, just go back to our lives. This passage demands our prayerful consideration. So I want to leave you with a few questions this morning to think about, to pray about in the days ahead, maybe the weeks ahead or months ahead. Honestly, these are questions that you might need to be asking yourself for the rest of your lives. First of all, are those questions on there, Bob? There we go, there we go. What relationships in your life 
might suffer some sort of division if you follow or if you keep following Jesus. If you aren't yet a Christian, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're considering who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, this promise, is, this promise of suffering is something that you cannot ignore. You can't gloss over it. Being a disciple of Jesus means choosing him first over every other relationship. Sometimes that choice won't involve any conflict with another person. Sometimes it will. So ask yourself, what relationships in my life are going to bring about division when I choose Jesus first? Think first in Jesus' own categories. Parents, children, siblings, other close family members. But then also think about what friendships are going to be impacted, maybe divided, as a result of me now making choices to put Jesus first. At work, many of us have constraints that force us, that force us into some kind of choice between Jesus and our workplace, or at least how we behave there as Christians. What divisions might happen in relationships at work as a result of choosing Jesus first? What romantic relationships are in view for you here. Like every other relationship, these are relationships that must be chosen second to Jesus. What will that entail for you? Second question that I want you guys to be reflecting on, what parts of your false self might you lose if you follow or you keep following Jesus? So most of us are not going to be called down that path of literally giving up our mortal lives for Jesus. It is possible. Some of us in this very room may be called to do that. But it's not as likely. However, it doesn't mean that losing our lives for Jesus' sake just doesn't really apply any less. Like that's the only way it could happen, therefore I don't need to listen to it at all. Remember again, that word for life can mean soul, it can mean self. And Christians have understood this verse to mean that when we follow Jesus, we lay down our very selves for his sake. There is, there's an internal laying down, an inward death to myself that I have to die before I am anywhere near ready to give my physical, mortal life for Jesus. So I and many others have found it very helpful to think of, uh, think of this as dying to my false self so that my true self in Christ can live. Galatians 2.20 is a great verse to keep in mind there. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When Paul wrote that, he had been physically crucified. It was his inner sinful nature that had been crucified, and now Jesus' own life, the true life that Paul was seeking to live, that was alive in him. Colossians 3, Paul writes again, put to death Whatever is earthly in you, put off the old self, put on the new self. So friends, ask yourself, what is the false self in you that needs to die? What are the actions and the attitudes and the choices, whatever it is, that are pointing to something inside of you that is not fully given over to Jesus? Now that can really take a long time to uncover. These these parts of us that we're talking about, these are things that are buried deep and they do not want to be found out. And once we do see them, we need to reckon not only with the fact that that's actually inside of us, but sometimes losing those very things is something we don't want to do. Losing it will feel like a loss 
because it is a loss. So what part of you, of your false self, might you need to lose if you keep following Jesus? Last question is this, and honestly ask yourself this. Don't breeze by it. Do I believe that the gain of following Jesus Christ is worth suffering those divisions and losses? Is it worth it? Do I believe that it's worth it? This is the question beneath all the others. Because if I don't actually believe that following Jesus is worth it, I'm not going to choose him when those losses get real. So don't pass by this too quickly. Friends, Jesus is calling you to follow him and he's telling you up front what that costs. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Brothers and sisters, let's choose him together. Let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge what a high and strong call you have placed on us. The call to follow you into a life of discipleship is a call to follow you into a life shaped like yours, a life of suffering. Lord, help us to remember that the suffering that you promised to us is not one in vain. It's one of immeasurable gain on the other side. Help us to set our vision singularly on you and the goodness and beauty that you bring. In Jesus' name, amen.